0: and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Thank you choir too for that lovely piece. Hey friends, I'm Pastor John J. I'm the lead pastor here and I get to share with you some stuff this morning. I'm very excited. First, let's start with a quick reminder. This morning, we are going to uh, talk about, let's see if we can get it up here. There it is. We're going to talk about new creation, specifically the creation part of new creation. We have been in this teaching focus since Easter on uh, heaven, earth, and the space where those two meet, which we call Jesus. Jesus. Bringing about the new creation. It's like this really big, big idea. So last week we talked about food, which is a really small and intimate way to get at this same idea. Today we're going to talk about that which is not human, animals, plants, this sort of ecology that we exist within in relationship. So anytime we talk about these sort of things, they may be familiar to you or they may be sort of out of left field and that's all fine. But you might have questions and I assume someone might have answers. That someone is probably not me, but I'll do my best. Uh, so in front of you in the pews, not everywhere, but in a lot of places, in those little spots where there are Bibles and where there are hymnals, do you all remember hymnals? It's what we used to, it's what we used to sing from. Yes. Uh, there are little cards that say question, answer, Q&A. If at some point you have a question and you would like to sort of throw that into the atmosphere, then you can fill that out with, you don't have to put your name on it, Um the sillier the question, the less likelihood you're going to put your name on it anyway. And silly questions are appreciated. Uh, but at the end of the sermon, at the teaching, we're going to do a time of offering. They're going to pass plates around. And that would be the time when you could drop that question in. Now, I have not figured out how we're going to deal with these questions. It depends on how hard they are. Uh, no, we, May 20th, we might get to talk about some of them in the service, but I've also got this one last teaching I really want to share, and there's only so many Sundays in a year, so they may show up to you in the form of an email or a video, we'll see. Either way, throw your questions to me, and we will we will discuss them and sort of toss them around a little bit together. Okay, let us now begin. I'm going to tell you a story as we get started, and then we're going to jump into some scripture together. This isn't a fun story. So that's how things are going to start today. When I was in college, uh, there was this group of guys that I thought, I don't know if I'm going to be friends with them or not. We're going to find out. And I, th- I feel like I made the right choice as this story reveals over time. So uh, this group of guys, and they were all, I should say, Baptist. Because that's how I knew them from the Baptist student ministries, BCM, BSM. I don't know what they called it at the time, Um, but they were sort of that angsty 18 year old version of humanity that always has a bad plan in the works. And, uh, we were in North Louisiana at the time, and it's kind of known as like the piney hills because there are pine trees everywhere, and they are huge pine trees, kind of like north on hill, just pine trees everywhere. And so this group of like four guys that I kind of knew but kind of didn't, uh, they decided that they were going to go and they were going to climb because there are no mountains in Louisiana. I thought there were mountains because any elevation change feels like a mountain. Until you live somewhere here. But there was this sort of hill. And and on the hill, they went to what they thought was like the tallest hill in town. And they found what they thought was the tallest tree in town. And they did that. They took an axe with them. And they just cut it down. Just because they could. And I don't know. I mean, granted, like this is a really good way to know who I should and shouldn't be hanging out with. Um, But there was something about this moment that has, has stuck with me. This group of kind of angsty young men with some version of pent-up aggression and mischievousness decide that what they're going to do is move out into this part of creation, find something that is like as majestic as you can get if you think in terms of hierarchy. Let's find the tallest of things and then let's knock it down. There is uh, all kinds of stuff wrapped up in that. But I want to hold that as we start this morning. This this imagery is a... uh, And I get it. Maybe you do too. There are different ways that we sort of trod heavily on creation. Make our presence known. Make sure that any and everything understands who's at the top of the order. And if it needs to be said that we are top, we'll cut down the tallest thing to say it really loudly. That was kind of the idea here. It feels like we are at the center of things. Like I feel pretty central to my own experience right now. You're here. There's something behind me here. I am the center of all of my own imaginings. And everything else is kind of revolving around me. You probably feel the same way wherever you're sitting. That that we individually me and individually you and then collectively humanity is at the center of the action this has always been a fallacy but it's one that's really hard to get over because it is a lived experience so at some point we thought that the earth was the center of things right and that everything else revolved around the earth but then at some point somebody came along and looked out at the sky and thought like that's actually not the way that things are there's a different way to understand reality let's decenter our own experience and look a little bit broader. But that was considered heresy, and like you kill people over those kind of things. And so that is the story there. Or a little bit later, you get another scientist who starts to talk about where we came from, the set of origin of species. And over time, it develops that maybe, maybe there is a uniqueness to humanity, but also a shared kind of lineage, that there is a broader kinship than we could have imagined. Now, we would say that this comes to us from this sort of theory of evolution. But even saying that word, the E word starts to sound like a four-letter word in church, which is crazy. It's just another way of understanding how we might be kin together. But when that started sort of making its way through culture, that also felt like a threat to our understanding of us being at the center of things. Of course we're at the center of things. Everything God's been doing in the world is for us, is what it can feel like. Even the way that often you would read your Bible or that I would read our, the Bible, it's sort of like, where's where am I in here? Where am I kind in here? And then how does the story of God interacting with humanity play out for me and mine? It's just sort of the way that we would read. Favorite verse, most popular verse. Somebody tell me where this is from. You all knew like right away. Because you know your Bible. So for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. you could finish it, right? Yes, exactly. Right. Good job. I sort of feel like this is how I was supposed to understand it. For God so loved the people. That he sent his only son. And the verse reads that way just fine. In fact, if I think about how I understood the verse over time, it was in this translation. For God so loved us, God sent Jesus to solve the human sin problem. Again, right? So I'm at the center and everything else is kind of rotating around me. But the language there is not anthropos or humanity. The word there is the cosmos. For God so loved the cosmos that he sent Jesus Cosmos is this really big term. It does not just mean me and you or even this planet. It means the whole created order. In fact, the writer in John's Gospel says it over and over again. For God so loved the cosmos that his only son said, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send Jesus in the world to condemn the cosmos, right? but to save the cosmos over and over again. It's this sort of echo there's something else at the center of god's view when it comes to redemption or salvation or re- reconciliation or re- whatever big religious words you want to use for setting things right for healing things it it applies to more than just us and that m- matters most of the time when we think about our relationship with the divine it sort of feels like this this is the the greek Letter theta, which is just a stand-in, a nice little symbol for God, theos. So there is God and there is humanity. And that is where all of the action is. That's where all of the communication is happening. And there is this other stuff, right, over here. There's this other part of reality we would call the created order. Here, imaged as a deer, a dog, a cat, and a bird. But there's a lot more that goes into that, rivers and streams and grass and trees and mountains and air and stars, planets, all of the stuff. So the question is like, what is that other stuff doing in the gospel story? What does Jesus have to do with all of this not us stuff? For a long time, we've thought about it as raw material. And actually, this is exactly the way I've heard a lot of people, a lot of Very, very religious people talk about anything that is not human. It is here for our enjoyment. It is here for our use. Before we lived here, we lived in the Midwest. And in the Midwest, there is a lot of oil money. And that means that oil priorities dominate the economy. And so they had developed this new way to get oil and gas out of the ground called fracking. And fracking is a very, very dirty process. It is incredibly violating to the earth. And so you sort of... I mean the whole thing feels violent. But here's the problem. It was happening so much in this area of the country that it was knocking the ground loose. There was hundreds of earthquakes a year where we live because of what was happening to the ground. Raw materials, right? These are ours for the taking. In that same area of the country, decades and decades ago, there was this raw material in the form of grass, and grass was useful for all sorts of things, and it grew really quickly in the plains, and so they would plant, and they would harvest, and they would plant, and they would harvest over and over. They wouldn't rotate crops. They wouldn't let the ground rest. And over time, created the circumstances that we now know as the dust bowl. The ground cries out based on our involvement, engagement, or exploiting of it. It is all connected. And we might take this view that it is all raw materials, ours, for the taking, but that is not how the Bible understands things. The language in Scripture over and over again is that anything that is not us is in kinship with God and therefore bound also up in our story. These fellow partners in creation. And that's the view we're going to take today. This is what's on the front of your bulletin. And if you can remember anything, try to remember this today. It is this sort of understanding of the relationship that God has with creation. Not just the relationship that God has with us, but the relationship that God has with all of creation. There is this sense that we stand in between God's activity and anything else in the world the God speaks to us exclusively and then we get to tell the rest of creation about this story but God creator has a relationship with that which is not us that has nothing to do with us there is something That like the sparrow knows about God that we have no access to. There is something that the streams know about their creator that we will never know. God is in relationship in a unique way with all of creation. Us included, but not just us. To set this other part in its own unique relationship to God, unmediated by us, begins to balance out the way we understand the created order. It de-centers us and puts us in a sort of holistic relationship. We would call this in the Old Testament shalom or peace. Whatever Jesus is about, Jesus is about rewriting this order and bringing a sense of wholeness to all that has been fractured. We talk about sin, we always talk about it as that which divorces us from these primary relationships, and I feel like the divorce, the separation that's happened between us and the non-human world, has been like so cleaved in two that it almost is unimaginable that we were ever in relationship in a way that was mutually gracious, kind and beneficial. Because most of the ways that we operate in the world is from this sort of take and take and take until the ground cries out, even sometimes quite literally. The book of Job, we're going to move around the Bible for a little bit before we get to Romans. The book of Job is this long extended poem about pain and suffering, And Job goes through this sort of breakdown, this falling apart of his life and of his family. And he keeps stepping up to God and charging God with injustice. And it's this like 30-something chapters of poetry of Job wrestling with this idea that God is in charge, but God is not quite trustworthy. God is silent for the whole time. It's like a courtroom where God's just sort of sitting on the stand and time after time Job steps up and accuses and accuses and accuses and God just stands silent. And then in chapter 38. One of the best sections of scripture. Job is also most likely one of the oldest pieces of scripture we have. There is something ancient about this understanding. Job's suffering puts Job in a bubble makes it so that job can only see as far out as his own pain creates an island around him and that's where he looks out from and he says like nothing is fair because my experience is everything's experience and i am miserable therefore everything is broken and god finally speaks and says out of the whirlwind who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge gird up your loins like a man which is like those are fighting words I'll question you and you shall declare to me. Like if you're on the playground as a fifth grader, Judah, and somebody says to you, gird up your loins, you you should go the other way. (laughs) So imagine then if it's like the creator of everything out of the whirlwind. It's a big deal. And he says this, where were you? When I laid the foundations of the earth, tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know, or who stretched a line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? I don't know if you were awake last night when the stars might have showed up in the sky. And I don't know if you heard them, but, but they were still singing. Right? There is a relationship that creation has with its creator that has nothing to do with us. Every once in a while we glimpse it, but it's always happening. The morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy. A little later, if you commanded the morning since the days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Or this has the rain a father? Or has the begotten the drops of dew? Who? Whose womb did the ice come from? Who's given birth to the frost of heaven? There is this creator that is mothering life into the world that is mothering creation into existence who fathers the rain who gives birth to the snow is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars spreads its wings toward the south over and over again god is decentering job taking him and setting him over here stand over here job a little further away go keep going out keep looking now what do you see You have to step out of that little bubble, that circle that's drawn around yourself just a few feet in radius and see the rest of creation that is engaged with the divine. If you notice the rain, if you notice the snow, if you notice the ostrich, if you notice the hawk, if you notice behemoth or leviathan, sounds a lot like a dinosaur. Just saying. This line, look at behemoth, which I made just as I made you. Now that line will feel either wonderful or threatening or both if you are deeply wed to the idea that you and only you and only me have been fearfully and wonderfully made, and that's what the psalmist says in the poems. If we're the only ones who get to claim that title, then everything else is reduced and reduced and reduced until it's at the point of raw material for our use or abuse. Look at behemoth, which I made just as I made you. A little bit later, can you draw a Leviathan with a fish hook? Will it make a covenant with you to be taken as your servant forever? There are parts of the created order that are wild and beyond your grasp, beyond your taming, independent of you. Again, either wonderful or threatening. Job says, See, I am a small account. What shall I answer you? Now we're getting there. God keeps setting Job just a little bit further away from the center of things so that Job can get a new perspective on the world that his suffering has shrunk down to the size of his own little radius. I am of small account and maybe not right in the center of things. So let's talk about that which is not us. Just a few little images we're going to go with for, for now. Did you know that trees sleep? I didn't know this. I thought that trees, I didn't know what trees were doing except for dropping their leaves in my yard. Right? Magnolia leaves. Those things never break down, and they're so big, right? I assume that the magnolia tree is sleeping. They've done this thing where they started to point these, like, laser cameras on trees at night, and they notice that in the evening, like a couple of hours after dusk when it starts to get dark, until dawn, the trees, they, like, they slump just a few centimeters, like 10 centimeters or so. And researchers are tracking this with the circadian rhythms, right? So the thing that puts us to sleep and wakes us up in the morning, that there is somehow embedded in everything a rhythm. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And there was evening, and there was morning. And we are not the only ones that are aware of this rhythm. The trees rest. That sounds quite human, but maybe it's just that it sounds creaturely. And we participate in that creaturely behavior, right? We sleep, the trees sleep. I know that my dog sleeps basically all day. (laughs) One other story. There is a supermarket. It doesn't exist anymore. But in New Orleans, there was a supermarket named Save a Center. And Save-A-Center was like half a block from where we lived and where my wife and I started dating. And so I don't know what we, what were we getting? Probably a smoothie at Smoothie King, because that's what 16-year-olds do. And uh, we were at the Save-A-Center parking lot. And uh, I noticed there were these, like, there's this high grass on the side. And I noticed that there was this, uh, this like, shuffling and the, the grass kind of moves around. And then all of a sudden, this thing runs out into the parking lot. <sighs> it's like this big. And it is not a squirrel because it has like no hair on its tail, but it's about the size of a squirrel. It's a rat. I don't love rats, but I was fascinated because I was in my car, a safe distance from striking distance for the rat. We were fine. And so my wife and I, girlfriend at the time, watching this rat and we're kinda like, you know, giggling at it. And then a car comes by and runs over the rat, right? And all of a sudden we realized that we're in a tragedy and not a comedy. So we gotta look at each other. I'm sorry, Jude. I didn't tell you this story it was gonna happen. All the kids are with us today. You might want to close your eyes, kids. Uh, let's go back one more. Yeah. So, so the rat is. Sometimes rats die. Okay. Sometimes they die from a car, and we're just kind of like, oh shoot, the rat died. But then the grass shuffles again, and then another. Right? Yeah. Then another rat comes out. I'm almost sure it was the the mama rat. It's the daddy rat, because only a daddy rat would go out first and get run over by a car. Like, definitely, mom rat was looking. So this other rat comes out and slowly walks up, smells, kind of sits, and wanders off a little, and comes back, smells. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I think I heard a little bitty rat cry. Now you know that's not true. Don't all <laughs> hear a rat cry? But it was this moment where it seemed as though there was a connection happening that was beyond what we think of as animal. If you have a pet, you know this is a thing. That three, three rats and they're human, and they're they're part of the created order. Or more, the elephants are not okay, guys. Did you know the elephants all over the world? There's something wrong. There have been all of these studies, research has been out in the field. The male elephants are going crazy. All over Africa, there used to be like one or two elephant attacks in certain seasons, but now it is just like through the roof. They cannot figure out what's going on. There are these young elephants and they are so angry. They're so anxious that they just go and they find something to kill. They're killing people. They're killing rhinos. They're killing each other. What they have discovered is that the elephants have PTSD. They're in these war-torn zones in a mixture of civil war and heavy poaching. And these are orphaned elephants without parents, so without support structures to raise them, cut off from meaningful relationships, wandering alone and turning to violence. It might sound ridiculous, but there is a certain kind of brokenness in a family structure, in a relationship system that is causing these elephants to become violent in a way that should remind us of some of the violence we're seeing from young men around the country. Elephants just don't have like AK-47s or AR-15s, right? They've just got these tusks, but it's the same kind of broken relationship because elephants are tender, right? They like, the baby elephant spends a long time, just a few feet from the mother. They are known to have elaborate burial rituals whenever one of their own tribe dies. Large family units that are deeply knit together. And we are in the mix with these elephants and we have disrupted things to such an extent that they are exhibiting signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Like, unbelievable. We are connected to creation whether we know it or not. And the kind of intention, the kind of care or violence that we inject into that system causes all kinds of outcomes. So when Paul Is writing to the church in Rome. He uses this language. You heard Cynthia read it. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it. I'm just gonna read a little bit of it for you. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. The language there is this creation it's like on tiptoes. It's craned out to see, waiting, longing for the revealing, for the apocalypse of the children of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but the will of the one who subjected it in hope. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. That line, the redemption of our bodies, that's next week. So come back with us and we're going to talk about what it means to be embodied creatures. Let's stay with this creation groaning part. Creation has been groaning. Subject to futility, in bondage and decay. Where does this language come from? It's only like one answer that would be right based on my sermons. Where does this come from? The Exodus. It's always the Exodus because the Exodus is like one of the most important things that happens in the Hebrew Scriptures. The way that Paul talks about creation is that they are trapped in another Egypt. Egypt. This language of groaning is the exact same language that we read in those early chapters of the book of Exodus when the Israelites are subjected to heavy labor in their slavery. And it says that this work, this labor was so burdensome that they groaned and they cried out and that God heard them. And God responded. That's how the story gets kicked off in those first couple of chapters of Exodus. There's this groaning that happens from the Israelites and these people in bondage and slavery and that God responds to it. So when Paul talks about creation, Paul says that creation, the created order, is bound up, is in slavery to decay and destruction. They are trapped in an Egypt waiting to be born anew. So like when... The Israelites, they pass through the Red Sea. Remember that part in the Exodus? The the sea opens and then they, they go on through to safety and slavery. That over time gets understood as the movement of a new humanity through birth. The sea is like a birth canal. That's the language that the rabbis give us. So creation is waiting for this new birth. That begs a question then. If there is this new exodus that's going to happen, that is in fact happening, how did they get there? Who was Pharaoh? We all raised our hands. Right? That's us. Read it again. For creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. We are the one. The elephants aren't going crazy just because they're going crazy. It's because we got all mixed up and mixed our own violence up with their world and it's spinning. These angry young men in our world in our country down the street are mixed up in violence that we have added to the system all of this stuff is connected the dust bowl the earthquakes the way that we live and tread on the earth it all matters stay with me for a second we're going to move through a couple of scriptures Because it feels like I need to share with you a little bit more about what it means to be Pharaoh. The scriptures, especially the Hebrew scriptures, are deeply concerned with what it means for humanity to not be free. To not be free to worship, to not be free to pursue God, to not be free to respond. Limiting human freedom and human flourishing is the Egypt experience. And so the rest of the Hebrew scriptures are grappling with what it means to have been a captive people and then the promise of release and then the danger of entering back into Egypt. Wherever Egypt might be, whether it's Babylon or whether it's Rome or whether it even might be America, like Egypt can be anywhere. The other thing that the Hebrew Scriptures warns of is not to be Pharaoh. Because that's the other danger. is As soon as you get out of Egypt, you might amass enough power, enough land that you get to enslave. That you get to call the shots. So when God sends them into the land, gives them all of these laws and commandments, a lot of them are concerned with not becoming Pharaoh. Like, make sure on the Sabbath that you don't just rest, but that everything gets to rest. That your animals and the land, that your crops rest. Make sure whenever a stranger or an immigrant enters into your land that you treat them with dignity because you used to be a stranger and an immigrant in a foreign land. Can you feel it? Don't be Pharaoh. Yeah, this is Leviticus. We are going to have the Torah memorized, guys, soon. <laughs> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is Jesus' Bible again, and we should say this. This is Jesus' Bible. This is Jesus' scripture. When are, we are sort of beneficiaries, we inherit this. Okay. Genesis 3. Everything falls apart. This little serpent, right? You know the story. Serpent tricks people and eating the fruit, and everything falls apart. But God speaks to each of them, speaks to the serpent, Here's the things, here are the consequences for what you've done. Which basically is just, you're going to be a snake. Which is a terrible consequence. Right? That's like all that's necessary. Snake. Then there's the woman. Consequences. And then there's the man and the consequences. But listen. Because you've listened. And you've eaten of the tree. About what I commanded you not to eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the Adama. In toil you shall eat of it all of your days. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. The ground didn't do anything. It is an innocent bystander in this equation. But it's caught up. The one who subjected it to futility. And thorns and thistles. And then our violence keeps spinning out of control until you get to the flood. Now if you're going to build a boat and it's only going to be able to save so many creatures why wouldn't you fill that boat with a whole bunch of people because we are the most important thing but that's not how the story goes there is this diversity of creation that is somehow rescued out of this violence and then on the other side of the flood there is a new covenant that's struck and you've got to understand this new covenant first covenant is with humanity and with creation be fruitful and multiply enjoy the goods of this world because it is all very very good and then it turns quite broken so God makes a new covenant with Noah, with his family, with the descendants, and with every living creature that is with you. And in case we miss it, the text goes on. With the birds, the domestic animals, every animal of the earth with you, all of the many that came out of the ark, God establishes a covenant, a promise, a relationship with humanity and everything else. Never again, never again. I'll remember my covenants between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. God makes promises to the animals. And somehow covenant language assumes that both parties to the promise are responsible for it. Imagine that for a second. That the created order, that the animal world has a moral obligation to the creator. I tell that to my dog all the time when Gertie doesn't listen. A moral obligation. But Gertie doesn't care. What does it mean to be Pharaoh? To oppress and exploit. To live in fear that there is not enough. That is like that is Pharaoh's central fear. That there is not enough. And so we take and we take and we take because everything is raw material for our fulfillment. That is the definition of slavery and bondage. So creation waits with eager expectation on tiptoes, groans, cries out to God, waiting to be born again. I would say, because at this point we need to talk about what do we do, is we should probably start with confession. Confession. Dear creation, sorry for everything, sincerely the people. To find a way to lean into that, there has been wrongs done, right? That we would use the, the Bible language of sin. And that sin has been in a relationship between us and that which is not us. And that God will hold us accountable for those wrongdoings. There is a crisis happening in creation. And you can see it operating in every sphere. And it is tempting to think that we stand outside of it. But there are times when it comes crashing into our lives. And so to confess, to make ourselves smaller, to step out of the center, it might be a good first step. There's a dead plant outside of my office because I kill every plant that I touch. I've, I kept it alive for like nine months. And I, I, every time I go by it, I feel this pain that I didn't care for it like I was supposed to. It was a small sort of thing. But there are all kinds of ways that we are complicit or we are trying ourselves to just not be Pharaoh. I want to sh- tell you a couple of stories as we wind down today about people who are much better at not being Pharaoh than me start with one of our own so cynthia who read the scripture for us is like our sort of patron saint francis of the staff uh if you don't know saint francis had like deep connection with creation joke is it preached even to the birds uh so at during holy week uh out here we had our illuminations and so people would show up in spurts and cynthia showed up where are you cynthia Right in the middle. Okay, um, I asked your permission to share this story, so I hope I share it fairly. Uh, you are out here uh, greeting people, and uh, I come out and I see Cynthia sitting on the ground like this, and uh, I don't know what's happening, but she's sitting here, and Cynthia is a very oh like. So Poorest at a soul level. You know, like you get it. If somebody's hurting, then you can feel that. If someone is a joy, you can feel that. It's not just people, apparently, it's also pigeons. I didn't know. And so uh so she's got this bird. And the bird is clearly injured unless you caught it midair, which would have been amazing. But no, the bird was hurt. And so Cynthia sees this creature in pain and kind of like picks it up and holding it. And then Deacon, you remember this deacon? Because you're in this picture too. Uh Deacon comes over to sort of you're also a similar kind of porous soul human uh, feels with people. And so they're both, they're caring for this injured bird. And I am like not that sensitive, right? So I think I came up and probably made a joke and like laughed and then disappeared again to do something else thinking like, oh, there's just a bird and they're going to take it, give it to like the vet. And I don't know what the vet does with pigeons. Um, and then I come back and you're crying. And I realize, I hear the story later that you knew the bird was not gonna live. You were there to usher it across. That is a priestly function. To be with a creature at the time of death is a sacramental moment. And you were there, right? It was amazing to watch you just be there. And feel that brokenness too. And somehow you opened up access to this moment for everyone who walked close to you. It was amazing. It was so sad, but it was amazing and wonderful to be present. That is actually what we were made for. That is the priestly function that humanity is given to tend to steward creation toward its good ends. Other story is from, uh, my daughter and son. So Ruthie and Judah, we, uh, were on a walk in our old neighborhood and, uh, did we hear or see Corey? I saw. Judah saw it. Judah sees everything. Saw a little squirrel that was at the base of a tree and it was very small and there was no parents around. We looked up and there was like the nest up in the tree but it was way high. We couldn't get up there. And so we had this big debate about do we take a squirrel home? Like that seems like a bad decision because then you're going to have a pet squirrel. And we also have, you can see in the top right, a pet Jack Russell. I, I don't think they get along. And uh, and of course, the kids convince us that we are supposed to care about these things. So we take and we name the squirrel what, Ruthie? Yeah, we named it Sad Sue. Because we assumed that Sue was sad. Cause Sue didn't have any parents. And put Sue in a box and i don't know how we kept sue alive for like the day called animal control there's this whole like refuge for animals that are abandoned in the area where we lived and so we delivered the thing um i wasn't paying attention it was like a disruption in my day i probably had dinner plans probably weren't thinking about but you two right there was a an awareness not yet quite dulled to the world as we live in it recently we baptized somebody in the congregation and uh can I tell the story of Pablo, Marley? Okay. So Marley was baptized recently. I did not ask you, but this is such a fun story that fits right in. Um, baptized Marley, and it was this like really lovely moment as a family. And, and Marley and Christina and Dan have a pet at home named Pablo, and P- Pablo is a what? A, a big pig, a really big pig. <laughs> and uh, Marley's sort of engagement with the pig along the lines of of salvation is like, we should also baptize Pablo. Which is really lovely. That's like, that's the thing. That somehow Pablo belongs to Jesus and that that matters. It all matters. The way that we live and breathe and walk along the earth, the way that we eat, the way that we tend and nurture or exploit matter and not just the way that we treat each other although the way that we treat each other is often dictated by the way we might treat that which is not us I do not want to hang out with somebody who's good at abusing animals for instance like that is a bad sign I know I do know why I don't buy this and why you may not buy this It is hard to imagine that God can fix me. You might be feeling that impossibility for your own life. That God is able to put right what is wrong in your experience. Like That feels like too much sometimes, a lot of the time. This is from the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. This voice cries out from the throne. This is the throne of God that is descending from God's realm, the heavens, down to the earth, our realm. These two realms meet. And then the voice from the throne says, behold, which is just the Bible's way of saying, pay attention. I am making all things new. And the language there for all things is the word pas, Which means all things. Not some of the things. Not just the things that are our favorite. But all things new. And I just don't know if I buy that. That seems like too many things. My stuff's already complicated enough. Your stuff's already complicated enough. How good is the good news? This is what is at stake in this entire focus we've been on at Easter. How good is the good news? How much does it encompass? How wide is the circle? How powerful is the cross and the resurrection? Is death really defeated? And if it's really defeated, is it just defeated for me and for you? Or is it for all of God's creatures? We ask you Sunday after Sunday to believe some impossible things. Starting with the dead people don't stay dead. And then applying that insanity to everything. We ask you to come gather here together because I tell you impossible things week after week. Like that God is making all things new. I have it on good authority that God is able And that we are responsible. Somehow what it means to be human. To be created in the image of God. Is that we steward creation. To its good end. It's quite a calling. If you're not sure what to do. Talk to Cynthia. Talk to Deacon. Talk to Ruthie or Judah. Talk to Mary Winchell. Talk to people who are being so careful. And so aware and awake. Would you pray with me? Would you confess with me? And cry out and hope with me? God of all creation. All that is not me. I confess, God, that I am obsessed with that which is right in front of me, and that which concerns me. I confess that I easily ignore that which does not apply or that I assume does not belong to me. Forgive me my trespasses. Forgive me my carelessness, the violence that I have inflicted. Forgive us our ignorance that we are bound together is your creation. Give this world a sense of rest, a Sabbath. Be with the elephants and their homelessness and be with those in Pasadena without a home. Be with the sparrow that falls that you know And with our family who is sick and dying. Be with the land that cries out. And save the one who has injured it. All of this is yours. And you are strong enough to care for all. Even us. So we pray now in the strong name of Jesus. Resurrection power defeats death. Amen.